Hi, I'm Mandy Henning, and this is Keep It Civil, a podcast about the Civil War presented by the Delaware County District Library's History Committee. In this episode, The Farmer and the Poet, a story of a lost arm, a found leg, and Delaware in the Civil War. Imagine being one person in a party of 23,000. If you lived in Delaware County in 1860, this was your exact situation. These days, you'd be one person in a party of 10 times that, or 209,000. Now imagine being one in a literal million. If you managed to survive the first three years of the Civil War, this was about the size of the Union Army by the time Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. This is the story of one man, or should we say kid, who was all of these things. A resident of Delaware, Ohio in 1860, one of a million Union soldiers, and one of approximately 620,000 who unfortunately wouldn't make it back home. But this is also the story of America's most famous poet, the South's most famous missing limb, and a love affair that lasted a lifetime. Oscar H. Cunningham was born around 1842 in Delaware, Ohio. Oscar's parents, Joseph and Christiana, were born in Pennsylvania around the end of the Revolutionary War. His father is listed on the census as a laborer farmer, and Oscar was the youngest of five siblings, born much later when both of his parents were already around 50. Delaware resident D.W.C. Luganbeel describes the schoolhouse where Oscar and his siblings first went to school in the 1850s. The schoolhouse was one of the first built in Delaware Township after the first settlement in the county. It was on the west bank of the Olentangy. It was a large room with boards fastened to the walls. In front of the desks were two rows of slab seats. The girls occupied the seats on the north side and the boys the south side. Entering the door, you found a little anteroom where hats, caps, bonnets, cloaks, etc. were left. A fireplace took up most of the space in the north. The school was in a deep woods, and most of the day we could look out the window and see wild turkeys. Delaware, Ohio at the turn of the 19th century was obviously a very different place from the Delaware of today. Here are a few big events and weird notes from Delaware's early timeline. In 1907, the first house was built by settlers in Delaware. The first physician, the first common police court, the first hotel, and the first distillery (laughs) all happened in 1808. In 1810, there was a bridge built across William Street. Williams, not Sandusky, was supposed to be the main street in town. More on this bridge later. In 1816, Delaware was officially incorporated. In 1818, the Delaware Gazette began to be published. The writers were a Presbyterian and a Baptist minister. In 1819, William S. Rosecrans was born. (laughs) You guys are going to see me get real excited when the Civil War stuff starts. I like all history, but I really like Civil War history. So here we go. If you go to Sunbury, if you're from Sunbury, you know about Rosecrans already. In 1820, Delaware has a population of 369 people. In 1821, the Delaware Literary Society was born. This will later morph into my very own Delaware County District Library. I need more information on this next one. In 1821, a man named James B. Weaver opened a school on the corner of Sandusky and Williams and very quickly thereafter fatally wounded a student, question mark, question mark, question mark. If you have any information on this event, will you please put it in the comments? In 1822, Rutherford B. Hayes is born at the Hayes Presidential BP (laughs) at 17 East William Street. In 1824, that bridge on William Street is so decayed that only foot traffic is allowed. In 1830, Delaware has a population of 532. In 1834, Delaware buys its first two-hand pumped fire extinguishers. In 1836, a flood sweeps the bridge from the Central Avenue 
into the already messed up bridge on William Street, causing additional damage. <laughs> in 1840, Delaware has a population of 898. Also in 1840, the Underground Railroad starts to become very active in Delaware. One of Delaware's first African-American citizens, a man named Abraham Highwater, moves to town in 1837. In 1842, the city levies a dog and hog tax <laughs> to try to deal with the large amount of stray animals. The tax was partially collected and then refunded due to general outrage. In November of 1844, Ohio Wesleyan has its first day of classes. In 1845, the Zion AME Church is founded in Delaware. It is the oldest congregation of African-American parishioners in the county. In 1846, William Little gives his son-in-law, quote, the castle at 192 William Street. It is built of blue limestone and would later become the Arts Castle. In 1847, unfortunately, the local newspaper, the Loco Foco, <laughs> is changed to the Democratic Standard. Why would anybody change the name of a newspaper called the Loco Foco? <laughs> it needs to come back. In 1849, 26 Delaware County residents traveled to California for the gold rush. I would love more information on this too. If you know what happened to those 26 Delawareans, put it in the comments. And in 1850, Delaware has a population of 2,074. Also in 1850, that William Street Bridge finally gives up the ghost and collapses into the river. In 1854, a new William Street Bridge is constructed. <laughs> I don't know if the, I'm sure that the current incarnation is you know, 27 bridges later. In 1856, Frederick Douglass speaks at 17 North Sandusky Street in favor of the Underground Railroad. In 1858, construction begins on Monette Hall uh, at Ohio Wesleyan. In 1860, the population of Delaware is 3,889. On April 12th, the Confederacy fires on Fort Sumter, thus beginning the Civil War, national news that will very quickly affect local news. In 1863, Ohio's very first African-American Civil War troops reported for duty at Camp Delaware in Delaware. These troops were only the fifth African-American infantry division in the country. In 1864, Marshall Clayson, an Owu student and founder of the Sigma Chi fraternity, is killed while leading his Civil War company in a charge on Kennesaw Mountain in Georgia. More on him in a future podcast. In 1867, the Hole in the Wall is built. The Hole in the Wall still exists today. It is on Central Avenue and has been Delaware's most historic makeout spot since 1867. By 1870, the population of Delaware was 5,641. It would have been 5,642, but the hero of our story, Oscar, has joined the Union Army as a three-year volunteer on February 1st, 1862. On his mustering record, Oscar is listed as a farmer from Delaware. He mustered in at Kenton under Colonel James Cantwell. Cantwell would later be killed a day before the Second Battle of Bull Run. Oscar was in the 82nd Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Major battles for his company included Bull Run, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, Missionary Ridge, the Atlanta Campaign, and Sherman's March to the Sea. Daily life when Oscar first volunteered for the war would have been drilling and marching and drilling and marching in camp. Soldiers in his company were issued a wool frock coat, dark blue trousers, and a federal issue frock cap or kepi. Most members of his company would have been issued the 1861 Enfield rifled musket, which was loaded with minet balls, and thanks to the barrel being rifled, had a range of up to 500 yards. Standard federal food rations could vary greatly by year, location, and whether or not your company was in camp or marching. In 1861, the daily ration for a Union soldier would be salt pork or bacon or salt beef, soft bread, flour, cornmeal, or full shutter, 
hardtack. <laughs> a bread that is unbreakable and inedible unless soaked. As the war went on, the ability to manufacture dried potatoes and mixed vegetables allowed soldiers to at least get some form of vitamins. But scurvy was still common, and many soldiers tried to forage for fresh fruit or berries. Standard ration for marching was one pound of hardtack, three quarters pound of salt pork, one ounce of coffee, three ounces of sugar, and salt. More salt, as if you want more salt. <laughs> marching units were sometimes also given fresh meat, and if they couldn't stop to cook or were prohibited from starting a fire, they would eat the meat raw. I assume this means that the Civil War stomach is sturdier than the modern stomach, but in the comments, please tell me whether or not Civil War stomachs could tolerate more bacteria than modern stomachs. I believe this to be the case. Obviously, there was no refrigeration. Oscar's company left Kenton after only one month of training and went through West Virginia on the trail of Stonewall Jackson. On April 30th, they found him and the Battle of Chancellorsville was on. The Battle of Chancellorsville is often mentioned as Robert E. Lee's greatest triumph of the Civil War, but it can just as easily be seen as one of the Union's greatest blunders. The battle really began in December of 1862 when Ambrose E. Burnside's huge blunders at the Battle of Fredericksburg cost the Union over 12,000 casualties. Ambrose Burnside is known historically for two things, being one of the generals Lincoln fired during the Civil War and his sweet, sweet facial hair, aka the sideburn. <laughs> Burnside knew he wasn't going to be an effective general. He knew he wasn't a good general. But he also knew that his replacement, if he didn't take the job, would be 48-year-old Massachusetts native Joseph Fightin' Joe Hooker. Burnside rightfully assumed Hooker would be a terrible general, but in early 1863, Lincoln didn't give either of them a choice and fired Burnside so he could promote Hooker. When Hooker lacked an actual experience, he made up for in bravado and self-confidence. In late April, he devised what he called a perfect plan to rouse Lee from his camp in Fredericksburg. Hooker believed Lee would retreat, but surprise, Lee also didn't lack bravado or self-confidence. Hooker's almost 100,000 troops met Lee's nearly 60,000 head-on in one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. A tangle of brush and thick woods called the Wilderness would be the primary location for the battle and would prove an ideal location for Lee's inferior numbers to stay hidden and attempt to surround the Federals. After two of his corps were forced back by Lee's men, Hooker made the inexplicable decision to fall back to Chancellorsville, thus putting Lee closer to his reinforcements in Fredericksburg. Lee was more than happy to fall back, and he and Stonewall spent the night creating a battle plan for day two. On day two, 39-year-old West Virginia native and full-on eccentric Thomas Stonewall Jackson took nearly 30,000 men and created a series of feints or false attacks using a small number of skirmishers. While Hooker's men were fooled, he managed to march his men 15 miles and cross directly in front of Hooker's army to surround the right side and rear. At around 5 p.m., Jackson's men unleashed the rebel yell, which Walt Whitman reported was paid back handsomely when Union troops bellowed back, attacked Hooker's right and rear, and pushed the Union army back almost two miles. At sunset, Jackson took some of his men into the woods to scout ahead for his army. A regiment of Confederates from North Carolina mistook the group for the Union army and opened fire. Jackson was hit in the shoulder, and the ball shattered his left arm, which was quickly amputated. Which leads us to one of the most unusual stories of the Civil War, the case of the missing arm. As Stonewall's arm was about to be thrown onto the pile with other amputated limbs, which, by the way, not that common in the Civil War. There's this urban legend that there are just piles of amputated limbs everywhere. Amputations were a necessity of the war, but there weren't piles everywhere. Anyway. A chaplain nearby insisted that in honor of the famous general who was well known for his Christian fervor, that his arm should be given a Christian burial. As a result, Stonewall's left arm was buried just outside of Fredericksburg. Stonewall himself was transferred to a nearby plantation and died several days later of pneumonia. 
His last words apparently were, let us cross over under the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Which I 100% do not think is his actual last words. That was, if you read letters from the Civil War, the Union guys, their last words were always, the Union shall be preserved instead of just like, or like, this is terrible and then die. Anyway, his widow was asked if his arm should be dug up to be buried with his body near their home in Lexington. But once she was informed the arm had a Christian burial, she said to leave his arm where it was. Despite her wishes, Union soldiers later dug up Stonewall's arm in 1864, and although there is a marker for the arm near its original location, no one has seen the arm since, I believe, 1926. It might have been 29. There was another group of soldiers that dug it up again, verified it was there in the 20s, and then put that plaque back, back down. Whether the arm is still there or not is unknown. After Jackson was carried from the field, 31-year-old Virginia native and far less eccentric Jeb Stewart took temporary command. Both sides settled in for the night, but a full moon allowed for musket fire most of the evening. Uh, night battles in the Civil War pretty unusual, but this is one of those times that there was, there was fire throughout the night. By May 3rd, both armies were sluggish from the past few days of hard fighting. Mounting casualties on both sides convinced Hooker to abandon key ground, and both his subordinates and men assumed Joe Hooker had lost his nerve. Fighting Joe seems to have two speeds, crashing headlong without a plan into hard fighting or full-on retreat. Later, when asked about Chancellorsville, Hooker remarked, I guess I just lost faith in Joe Hooker. At the same time, Confederate artillery and infantry roared to life, and during a massive push, Hooker himself was knocked unconscious by debris from a Confederate round. Many of his subordinates hoped he would stay unconscious and allow them to unleash the full fury of the massive Army of the Potomac. But unfortunately, he regained consciousness and pressure from Union reinforcements divided Lee's army into three fronts. Sounds great, right? A divided army with inferior numbers who just lost a key commander. And not so much as it turns out. As the battle rages on, Hooker held a council of war with his core commanders, and they unanimously voted to continue the battle. Inexplicably, Hooker rejected all opinions that weren't Joe Hooker's <laughs> and ordered the army to retreat across the Rappahannock after losses of approximately 17,000 against Confederate losses of 13,000. Those numbers in the Civil War all, always mean wounded, lost, missing, captured, or dead. So these are not all, all um, fatalities, especially in the Confederate army. They were so close to their homes that often they would just go home. So it was 17,000 Union losses and 13,000 Confederate. Soldiers on both sides of the battle were mystified by Hooker's decision to retreat. One soldier of the 141st Pennsylvania wondered, must we lose this battle? Have these brave comrades who have fought so bravely and died in their, at their post died in vain? Meanwhile, Confederate cartographer Jedediah Hotchkiss recorded in his journal on May 12th that he, quote, had no idea the enemies were so well fortified and wondered why they left their works so soon. Lee's daring victory leads him to gain even more self-confidence that he doesn't need because <laughs> he already has plenty. And he now considers the Army of Northern Virginia directly protected by God. Two months later, he will push his army north to Pennsylvania, and his loss at Gettysburg won't change his mind at all because he's Robert E. Lee. So, enter back into the story our buddy Oscar from Delaware, and unfortunately, things aren't going so great for him. During the exact moment that Stonewall is attempting his risky flanking maneuver, Oscar was hit by an enemy Manet ball in the right leg, right above the knee. When you think of Civil War medical care, what do you think of? Maybe the aforementioned pile of limbs? Surgeries without cleanliness or anesthesia? Is it the war wounded filling up the medical wards or is it disease? 
I'm not gonna lie, if you were like, good news, Mandy, you can travel back to the Civil War, but you have to be in a Civil War hospital. Despite my complete obsession with the Civil War, I'd probably have to pass. But there were also a lot of advancements and legitimately caring and creative medical professionals during this era. So let's start with the bad. First of all, disease killed two soldiers in the Civil War for every one who died in battle. But this was a huge improvement over the Mexican War where seven out of 10 died of disease. Germ theory hadn't been invented yet, but doctors definitely knew that quarantining sick soldiers kept others from getting sick. By the Civil War, doctors had figured out that quinine would keep soldiers from getting malaria. So okay, the treatment for illness in the Civil War is better than previous wars, but not great. What about the treatment for wounded soldiers? More bad news. First, advancement in weaponry had far outpaced advancements in military tactics in the years leading up to the Civil War. During the Revolutionary War, the average accurate range for a non-rifled musket was about 100 yards. So marching in big lines directly facing your enemy was fine at that range. By 1862, though, all federal muskets were rifled, meaning their range could be seven times farther than Revolutionary muskets and more accurate. The Springfield rifle, the most popular gun of the Civil War, was usually a 58 caliber, and the round weighed a whopping one and a half ounces, and was over a half an inch in diameter at the base. Let's take a second to talk about pronunciation. I've already done this twice for Civil War fans. Most Americans pronounce this round as mini, like the mouse. But the guy who invented it was French, so Minet is probably more correct. Also, I'm a fancy lady who likes to sound fancy and probably pretentious. So, the butler did it with the Minet at Gettysburg. <laughs> anyway, unlike the round musket balls of earlier wars, the cone-shaped mini, or Minet, could inflict much more serious damage. This is one of the reasons for the large number of amputations during the Civil War. Surgical skills of that era just couldn't deal with the damage inflicted by these larger, heavier caliber rounds. So if you combine much better weaponry with the same military tactics that Napoleon used, you have a recipe for a very bloody war. And our Delaware buddy Oscar is about to discover what medical care looks like in Washington, D.C. in 1864. Well, friends, this part is getting kind of heavy. Let's take a mental break. This is a section I like to call Tall Tales with Short Phil. Phil Sheridan was born in 1831 in New York, and he was a little tiny baby. <laughs> He's also one of my favorite wild men of the Civil War. Lincoln described Sheridan as a brown, chunky little chap with a long body, short legs, not enough neck to hang him, and such long arms that if his ankles itched, you could scratch them without stooping. At 5'4", he was small even by Civil War standards. Grant is often described as short, and he was 5'8". <laughs> by the way, if you look up the Wikipedia article for Phil Sheridan, they say at full-grown height he was 5'4", which I think is very rude. <laughs> anyway, today's little infant baby Phil story comes from the Battle of Missionary Ridge. On November 25th, 1863, little Phil was ordered to reinforce Sherman, who was struggling to take the seemingly impregnable Missionary Ridge, which was occupied during the Chattanooga campaign by Braxton Bragg and his men. So Sheridan arrives at the base of Missionary Ridge riding his legendary horse Rienzi, reportedly sweeping off his hat and he greets the Confederates with a hearty, here's at you, at which point they clearly shot at him, <laughs> spraying the tiny, tiny Phil in his much larger horse with dirt and stones. Sheridan put his hat back and shouted, that's damned ungenerous, I'll take your guns for that, and ordered his men to charge up an almost vertical rock face that was completely covered by Confederates and guns. The slope of Missionary Ridge is so steep that cannons reportedly couldn't be fired at the men below as they scaled the mountain because the cannon rounds would just fall out. Not only did 8.5 pound baby tiny infant Phil and his men take the ridge, 
They chased Braxton Bagley's men all the way back to Chickamauga Station before they realized nobody else was backing them up and they should probably head home. Stay tuned for more tiny little adorable baby Phil stories that may or may not be totally factual in future episodes of Let's Keep It Civil. Okay, back to Oscar. So he's just been wounded above the knee and is about to be transported away from the battlefield. Because Chancellorsville was technically a Union loss, medical transport had to wait for Confederate permission to remove Union wounded, and many men waited for days before being taken off the field and given treatment. Transporting sick and wounded soldiers by ship was an innovation of the Civil War, and beginning in 1862, the Quartermaster General of the Union Army allowed the U.S. Sanitary Commission to use idle government steamboats to be used to bring soldiers back up north for treatment. The South didn't have a sanitary commission, but they were also much closer to home if they became sick or wounded. After wounded Union soldiers were removed from the field, they would be taken to the dock by either train or horse-drawn ambulance. A doctor on the dock would load soldiers onto the steamboats based on the severity of their wounds. The most seriously wounded would remain in the lower portion of the ship so doctors and nurses could keep a closer eye on them. The moderately wounded would be loaded into the upper portions of the ship. Soldiers with minor wounds would either be treated in camp or they would be housed in tents near the dock until space was available on board the steamboat. Transport ships usually had a, quote, women's department. These women would try to keep the soldiers comfortable, feed them, change dressings, and make sure clothing and bedding were kept clean. Oscar was transported from Chancellorsville to Washington, D.C. and was outside of the Armory Square Hospital waiting for treatment when Walt Whitman happened to walk by. Walt Whitman was 42 when the Civil War broke out and was already a well-known poet after his masterwork, Leaves of Grass, was published in 1855. After two of his brothers joined the ranks and one was injured, Walt Whitman volunteered to be a sort of a nurse in Washington hospitals. He helped injured soldiers to write letters, provided paper, envelopes, and other small gifts, changed dressings, and tried to help with morale. When he met Oscar outside of Armory Square Hospital, he wrote his mother, Oscar H. Cunningham, Bed 20, Ward K, Ohio boy, large, told me he usually weighed 200 pounds. Fracture of leg above knee, rather bad. A fine, magnificent specimen of Western manliness. In his notebook, Whitman jotted down the name and address of Oscar's sister, obviously promising to write her, which he later did. After he was transported to Armory Square Hospital, Oscar was treated by U.S. Army Surgeon D.W. Bliss and visited by Walt Whitman for the next year. Although Bliss seems to have done a good job on Oscar's case, in fact, Whitman specifically mentions what a good surgeon he is, he has a spotty reputation both during and after the Civil War. Bliss became superintendent for Armory Square Hospital mid-war and continued to practice in Washington, D.C. after the war. In 1863, he accepted a $500 bribe to use a specific type of stove in the hospital and spent a few days in the old Capitol prison. After the war, Bliss was expelled from the D.C. Medical Society for associating with homeopathic doctors and for opposing the addition of black members to the Medical Society. Shortly before President Garfield was shot, he was readmitted to the society, but the incident left him suspicious of any new medical practice, such as antiseptic practices like those recommended by Joseph Lister, you know, of Listerine fame. Bliss was a friend of Garfield's, so when he was shot in 1881, he was summoned by Robert Todd Lincoln to help. Bliss examined the wound with unsterilized probes and his fingers and determined the bullet was in Garfield's liver. Seeing a chance to regain his lost reputation, Bliss immediately took charge of Garfield's treatment, ordered the president to be isolated, drafted the untrained wives of cabinet members to be his nurses, and repeatedly probed the wound with a variety of unsterilized implements over the next few months. <laughs> Eventually, Garfield got so sick from infection that Bliss was forced to feed him rectally, 
a thing I didn't know existed that now will never leave my brain. <laughs> Until Garfield mercifully died almost three months later. After his death, Bliss tried to submit a bill for $25,000 to the president <laughs> for his treatment and was offered $6,500 in a pending malpractice suit before he finally dropped the case and faded back into obscurity. Anyway, <laughs> Oscar was shot in the right thigh and the Minet caused a compound fracture of his femur. Then and now, an army surgeon's first duty is to stop the bleeding. After that, stopping the spread of infection is the next concern. Germ theory didn't really begin until the 1870s, but doctors and surgeons knew that foreign matter in the wound, aka visible dirt, would increase the chances of infection. Doctors knew to that they needed to clean the wound, but often didn't think to use clean instruments or clean dressings. While Oscar was recovering from his initial wound, Whitman continued to visit him. In a November letter to his friend Levi, Whitman asked Levi to, quote, Tell Oscar Cunningham in your ward that I send him my love, and he must try to keep up good courage while he's confined there with his wound. About a month after he was shot, the bullet was finally removed from Oscar's leg. Although initially successful, abscesses started to form around the wound after the bullet was removed. Almost a year after his initial wound, Whitman wrote to his mother saying that Oscar's leg is in a horrible condition, all livid and swollen and out of shape. The chances are against him, poor fellow. Finally, on the 2nd of May, 1864, a year after his initial wound, having been in the hospital for a year, Dr. Bliss amputated Oscar's leg above the knee. In the notes from the surgery, Dr. Bliss mentions that the boat itself had begun to heal in the year since the initial wound, but that there was extensive infection and he was concerned that it would be difficult to find enough healthy vessels to close the wound. That same week, Whitman wrote to his mother that, quote, Cunningham, the Ohio boy with leg amputated at thigh, has picked up beyond expectation. Now it looks altogether like getting well. The hospitals are very full. That same week, Whitman wrote to Oscar's family, expressing new hope for Cunningham's recovery and telling them it was unnecessary to make the long trip east. But 10 days later, Whitman wrote to his mother that, quote, Oscar Cunningham, 82nd Ohio, has had a relapse. I fear it is going bad with him. Lung diseases are quite plenty. Night before last, I stayed in hospital all night tending a poor fellow. By May 25, 1864, Whitman wrote his mother that, quote, I believe I wrote several times about Oscar Cunningham, 82nd Ohio, amputation of right leg, wounded over a year ago. A friend of mine here. He is rapidly sinking. Said to me yesterday, oh, if he could only die. Interestingly, Whitman chose not to write Oscar's family again to tell them of his downturn. By June 3rd, Whitman told his mother that the soldier he had visited for so long was near death. I have just left Oscar Cunningham, the Ohio boy. He is in a dying condition. There is no hope for him. It would draw tears from the hardest heart to look at him. He is all wasted away to a skeleton and looks like someone 50 years old. You remember I told you that a year ago he was first brought in. I thought him the noblest specimen of a young Western man I had seen, a real giant in size and always with a smile on his face. Oh, what a change. He has long been very irritable to anyone but me, and his frame is all wasted away. He also gives a window into Armory Hospital at the time, saying, The deaths in the principal hospital I visit, Armory Square, average one per hour. On June 4th, Oscar finally died. Whitman said, I was with him Saturday forenoon and also evening. He was more composed than usual, could not articulate very well. He died about 2 o'clock Sunday morning. Very easy, they told me. I was not there. It was a blessed relief. His life had been misery for months. To his mother, Whitman was able to vocalize some of the strain that was beginning to show in him after so many deaths and all the months he'd been working in the hospital. Well, mother, poor Oscar Cunningham has gone at last. 
He is the 82nd Ohio boy, wounded May 3rd at 63. I have written so much of him, I suppose you must feel as if you almost knew him. The cause of death at last was the system absorbing the pus, the bad man manner instead of discharging it from the wound. I believe I told you in last letter I was quite blue from the deaths of several of the poor young men I knew well. Especially, too, I had the strong hopes of their getting up. Things are going pretty badly with the wounded. The papers are full of puffs and but the truth is, but the largest proportion of worst cases got little or no attention. We received them here with their wounds full of worms, some all swelled and inflamed. Many of the amputations had to be done over again. One new feature is that many of the poor afflicted young men are crazy. Every ward has some of them that are wandering. They must have suffered too much and it is perhaps a privilege that they are out of their senses. Mother, it is almost too much for a fellow and sometimes I wish I was out of it. Shortly after Oscar's death, Whitman developed some kind of a strange fever that he believed to be the result of being around so many sick soldiers in the hospital. It was probably actually exhaustion and nervous strain, and Whitman was forced to go home to recuperate with his mother for several months. Dr. Bliss, meanwhile, dutifully cataloged the leg bone that was removed during Oscar's amputation, and it has since lived at the American Medical Museum in Washington, D.C. As for Oscar himself, he was one of the first soldiers to be buried in the New Arlington National Cemetery. After Oscar's death, his sister Helen corresponded with Whitman. Although grateful to Oscar's hospital friend for his devoted service, Helen couldn't help but reproach Whitman for discounting the seriousness of Oscar's final illness and dissuading her from visiting. I received yours of the second telling us of Oscar's condition last Wednesday, she wrote. I was going to start right off to see him. I would have come long ago, but he thought not, and so did you. This time I intended to go whether anyone thought best or not, but the same eve Lieutenant Perry came bringing us the sad news of his death. After the war, one of Oscar's sisters named her son after Oscar. That Oscar ended up serving in World War I. Helen herself would go on to marry her sister's widower, and both would be buried in Illinois. After recuperating in his mother's home for several months, Whitman would put the national grief over the loss of President Lincoln into perhaps his most well-known poem, O Captain, My Captain. After the war, happiness would find Walt Whitman in the most unusual of ways. There are several documented cases of Whitman falling in love with soldiers he helped to treat in the hospitals of D.C. Some reciprocated and some not. By 1866, he was nearly 50 years old, was deeply emotionally scarred from everything he'd seen during the war, and was recuperating from his mysterious hospital illness in his mother's home in Brooklyn. One night he happened to take a horse car that was driven by Peter Doyle. Doyle was born in 1843 in Ireland and had immigrated with his family to Virginia when he was eight. Doyle enlisted in the Confederate Army and fought with the Army of Northern Virginia until he was wounded at the Battle of Antietam. Pete decided it was about time to get out of the Army and signed an affidavit that he was an Irish citizen and that he had no relatives in the Confederacy, which was a blatant lie since the rest of his family still lived in Richmond. He was released from the Army but nearly arrested in 1863 still in Richmond. In 1863, he escaped to Washington, D.C., was briefly arrested and then took up residence with his mother and siblings where he became a horse car conductor. In 1865, Whitman was returning from a meeting when he took a horse car Doyle was driving. He was alone in the car, and it was literally a dark and stormy night. Whitman was hunched over, looking depressed and cold, and Doyle approached him. As Doyle put it, it was a lonely night, so I thought I would go in and talk to him. Something in me made me do it, and something in him drew me that way. He used to say there was something in me that had the same effect on him. From that time until Whitman's death 27 years later, he and Doyle were inseparable. And so, at last... The Union Hospital poet found some small happiness in the strangest of places, in a trolley car driven by an ex-Confederate.
After Oscar's death, Whitman struggled to put into words the grief and remorse he felt over the loss of Oscar and so many other young men over the past four bloody years. A poem titled, Come Up From the Fields, Father, seemed to be specifically about Oscar. Come up from the fields, father, there's a letter from our Pete. And come up from the front door, mother, here's a letter from thy dear son. Down in the fields all prospers well, but now from the fields comes father. Come at the daughter's call, and come to the entry, mother, to the front door, come right away. Fast as she can, she hurries, something ominous, her steps trembling. She does not tarry to smooth her hair nor adjust her cap. Open the envelope quickly. This is not our son's writing, yet his name is signed. A strange hand writes for our dear son, O stricken mother's soul. All swims before her eyes, flashes with black. She catches the main words only. Sentence is broken. Gunshot wound in the breast. Cavalry skirmish. Taken to hospital. At present low, but will soon be better. Grieve not so, dear mother, the just-grown daughter speaks through her sobs. The little sister huddles around speechless in dismay. See, dearest mother, the letter says Pete will soon be better. Alas, poor boy, he will never be better. Nor maybe needs be better, that brave and simple soul. While they stand at home at the door, he is dead already. The only son is dead. But the mother needs to be better. She, with thin form, presently dressed in black. By day her meals untouched, then at night fitfully sleeping, often waking. In the midnight waking, weeping, longing with one deep longing that she might withdraw unnoticed, silent from life, escape and withdraw, to follow, to seek, to be with her dear, dead son. Special thanks to Ohio Wesleyan University, the Delaware County Historical Society, and the American Battlefield Trust for helping with the research for this podcast. This has been Keep It Civil. I am your host, Amanda Henning, from the Powell Branch of the Delaware County District Library.